0: Thanks, you guys. Thanks for leading us in worship. And I want to also begin by expressing a heartfelt thanks to everyone who participated in any way whatsoever with this mission Mexico trip that we just got back from. Thank you. Um, we have wanted to offer this opportunity for our teenagers for nine years, and it was so exciting for it to finally become a reality. Oh, it was so good. They put on a Mexico or a Minnesota themed fiesta. That was one of the things that we did. It was hilarious. Um, we had hockey for the kids to participate in and they could do get little tickets for all these things that they did. So there was hockey for the kids. There was ice fishing. Of course, you're sitting on a bucket, right? A bucket ice fishing. Um, we even made s'mores. All these kids never roasted a marshmallow before. We're making s'mores out there. Of course, you could just hold... Well, coffers, hey, how are you guys doing? Um, <laughs> look, a distraction. No, great to have you guys back. We we'll have to catch up after. Um, but we could have just put the marshmallows and the chocolate in the sun, you know. But it's great. So they would, they would, they would do all these events, and and they would, um, they would uh, earn all these tickets, and then they'd go to the Mall of America. They go to the Mall of America and they cash them in for, for candy and prizes. It was great. And, and so we did this Minnesota-themed fiesta and we laid concrete for a church, mixing that out 105 degrees, you know, and we're making concrete and helped to add on to a playland for the kids. It was, it was great. They had a chance to go up on the rooftop. Some of you have been up there. Uh, the rooftop overlooking uh, the border to, um, to go on this mountaintop where we oversaw the city. So powerful to reflect up there. Many witnessed poverty like they'd never seen it before. They had a chance to see some things that, that they'd never been in the midst of. And we experienced some pretty cool Christian community where we're doing life together, eating meals together, praying together, worshiping together. So thank you. Um, and the, one of the cool things is it wasn't a one-off. You know, I've got some keys right here. Before I left, made some keys to our storage unit down at this home. And in that storage unit now, there's tools that we purchased for this trip that we can use again. More concrete, Paul. Come on, man. You got it, right? More that we can use again in the next trip. We have some of our supplies left over from our Fiesta that we can take to the next level next time we go down. We got some coolers that we purchased this time around that now we can use again for some thirsty people uh, in next year's trip. We're going to continue to build on this good work that God has done. And I'm really excited to be able to do that. So thank you for everyone. Thanks for those of you who contributed through the auction. Thanks for those of you who prayed for the group. Thanks for those of you who took a chance to send your most precious, precious people, you know, in your lives with us. And and thanks for those who went. It was a great thing. Well, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about trips like this is because decisions are made on trips like this. In addition to the people that we bless by going, there are decisions that are made that are life-altering on trips like this, as people surrender all in that context. And that was the case for me in 1985 when I went to my first trip on one of these things. That trip changed the trajectory of my life. And as we dive into today's teaching, I'd like us to start with this thought. Here it is. We are continually confronted with life-altering decisions. Isn't that true? And sometimes we know going in that the decision is going to be altered life-altering. Sometimes we know that. When it comes to choosing a college, one of the reasons a lot of times people have so much apprehension with choosing a college is like, this is a big decision. Choosing a career, we know going in, that's a big decision. Choosing to enter into the covenant of marriage, big decision. With our jobs, often we're facing these decisions that come our way that we know this is a big deal. So there are times where we, we have these decisions, we know that they're big deal decisions, but there's other times when a life-altering decision comes our way and we don't know that it's life-altering until after the fact. Our next series, actually our next two series, God and His sovereignty line them up pretty well. Our next series is going to be called Trending. And we're going to be looking at some of these things that are happening in our world that are actually what we see on the top of of the surface level trends. There are deeper trends underneath them that are happening for centuries. That's our next series. We're going to be pressing into these things, these life-altering things that are happening all around us. And after that, we're talking about a series called Holy War. Talk about life-altering, all of the things that are happening there. But sometimes we don't know that our decision is life-altering. Take the decision that some people made to visit Turkey recently. They didn't know it was going to be this life-altering. Or a decision to go to a fireworks display with your family in France. Who would have known that that decision would be so life-altering? Or a decision to go to a club in Orlando. Those folks had no idea how life-altering that decision would be. And as I was leaving to go down to R S, you know, someone was making a decision to simply get in their car one is a civilian, one is a police officer. They had no idea how life-altering that decision would be. We're constantly, constantly facing life-altering decisions, and we're in the book of Daniel right now, and Daniel has so much wisdom and so much insight when it comes to decisions and, and how God is at work in our world. And we only have uh, so much time on a Sunday morning, and we're actually going to cover a lot of ground in a short period. of amount of time, we're going to look at chapters 4, 5, and 6, and the, and the lens through which we're going to look at it today is specific to decision-making, and even more specific about that, we're going to zero in on pride, pride and decision-making. So if you're a note-taker, I'd encourage you to write this down. I was struck by these things as I was reading and rereading chapters 4, 5, and 6, and whereas this week, here's what something I encourage you to write down. The book of Daniel, among so many other things, highlights the importance of humility. I'd encourage you to write that down. This is a huge theme throughout the book. The book of Daniel highlights the importance of humility. Humility is one of the ways that we can begin to align our decisions with the life that God calls us to. Will God's purposes ultimately come to pass? Yep, regardless of our actions, ultimately. However, this morning we're going to see how our experience is qualitatively different when we choose the path of humility. Rather than God humbling us, it's qualitatively different. All right, well, pride. Pride takes a lot of forms. We're going to look at three of them today. We're going to look at the form of pride that is, I got this. We're going to look at the form of pride that is, we got this. And we're going to look at the form of the pride of, you've got this. All right? And we're going to look at each of these in play in three cautionary tales from three kings. Again, we're going to cover a lot of ground here in a, in a short period of time part of time. I'm going to need an extra five minutes and still won't get through it all. But, but we've got three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, he's chapter 4, Belshazzar chapter 5, and Darius chapter 6. And we're going to look at each of these three kings, three cautionary tales, one of them emphasizing I got this, one we've got this, one you've got this. All right, let's dive right in. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this guy was a big deal. This guy was a Big, big, big deal. If you look in your history books, you're going to find Nebuchadnezzar outside the scriptures. He was a big deal. After a string of military successes, Nebuchadnezzar became the king of the Babylonian Empire. He ruled for 43 years. During that time, he built lavish palaces decked out in cedar and ivory and gold and silver. He fortified Babylon. Sections of Babylon had at least five walls, one of those, and a moat. Come on. Come on, a moat. Um, One of his walls, the outer wall was so big that legend has it, you could take two chariots with a team of four horses each and they could cross each other on that outer wall. You can't do that on Lexington right now. So this is impressive, (laughs) impressive. Now, on top of all this, Nebuchadnezzar created the legendary hanging gardens of Babylon and supposedly he did it for his wife which makes me feel this big because I feel really great when I pick up flowers at Target for Laura. And here he goes and creates one of the seven wonders of the world for his wife. Are you kidding me? All right, well, here's the cautionary tale. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Nebuchadnezzar's cautionary tale. Hey, I've got this. I've got this. If you have your Bible with you, please open it again to chapter 4, but we're going to look at right now at verse 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. We keep them at each of our tables there. We'd love for you to take one home as a gift. All right, here we go. This is a simple little sentence here. It's actually a partial sentence, and it just says this. Nebuchadnezzar says, I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. How many of you know that that can be a dangerous place? Isn't that the truth? A lot of times that's where this form of pride, I've got this, can set in. Does God want to bless us? Absolutely. When we're blessed, is it really easy to forget where that blessing comes from? Absolutely. Nebuchadnezzar was about as successful as successful gets, and he forgot that it was God who accomplished these great works through Nebuchadnezzar began to take credit for that which God had done, and God fired a warning shot across his bow in the form of a dream. Nebuchadnezzar told this dream to Daniel. Daniel got the the interpretation of the dream from God, and he shared the interpretation of the dream of God. It's all there in in chapter 4. But instead of adjusting to the word of God that came through Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar continued to put faith in himself. got this, and here's what happened. Jumping ahead to verse 29. At the end of 12 months, after Daniel, through, through God, reveals this dream, after 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? We got a lot of very, very successful people at our church. And when you're successful, it's really easy to take credit for your success, isn't it? Instead of giving credit where credit is due. And when we're faced then, we have success and we're faced with a challenge. We're often tempted to say, on the basis of our success, I got this. I got this. I can handle it. I know what I'm doing. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous. You know, and it takes the form sometimes of very simple things. Texting, right? Texting while you're driving or looking even at a text. There's not a person in this room that would say, that's a good idea if a text comes in to look at it. But what do we say? I got this. So even things as simple as that escalated up to, to whatever big decision you have. I got this can get us in trouble. Pride can lead to bad decisions. Pride can also lead to misinformed conclusions. Isn't that true? Life is complicated. Can I get an amen? Life is complicated. And what does pride do? Pride will oftentimes get us to simplify things that can't be simplified or shouldn't be simplified. Immigration issues are complicated, right? Poverty, poverty alleviation is complicated. Race issues are complicated. And we only add to the divisiveness and the dividedness in our nation and in our world and in our relationships. When we say, I've got this, it's like this. Instead of really listening and trying to understand the perspective of others. Pride is at the root of that. I've got this. I've got it figured out. Well, the warning from God that Nebuchadnezzar failed to heed, it came to pass, as the word of God does. And here's what happened. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, I got this, there came a voice from heaven that said, you don't got this. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be among the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat the grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high God, he rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom? He will. God's word proved true. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way. But at least he learned. Look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Isn't that a great, (laughs) hope-filled phrase right there? My reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. In my notes, I wrote, someone needs to hear this. The reality is we all need to hear this. What a tragedy it is when God in his grace humbles us and we don't learn that lesson. What a tragedy it is when God in his grace humbles us through consequences and we don't learn that lesson. Now, for the record... The goal of a good father's discipline, it is not to shame, it is not to destroy, but rather to refine and restore. When we learn the hard way, he's got a he's got point to that. And it's not to shame, it's not to destroy. Take a look at this. When there was sincere repentance on Nebuchadnezzar's part, verse 36, here's what happens. Seventh-day Kessar goes, okay, at the same time as I finally got it and I repented, my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors, my Lord sought me. I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now, 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 I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all of his works are right All of his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he's able to what? Humble. Now, there's still a little bit of pride in what Nebuchadnezzar said in that first section there, but he's learning, right? He's learning. He's taking a step in the right direction, and that's a good thing. Pride is not reality-based. Pride's not reality-based. It's a, I got this as an illusion, and that's true whether you're an emperor or an empire or someone that's trying to lead drip, drip, drop, right? Illusion is a control, is it not, Gabby? It is a, Paul, you were in on that one too, right? It is an illusion. we got no control in drip, drip, drop at a children's home. God is the source of all true wisdom and power. It is his breath in our lungs. It is he who moves the chess pieces. It's he who moves the chess pieces even as we make our decisions. And that brings us to our next cautionary tale. Here we go, chapter 5, the cautionary tale of Belshazzar. This one is, we've got this. We've got this. The first six chapters of Daniel consist of six stories. And the transition between these stories are sometimes very abrupt. The abruptness of the transition between chapter 4 and chapter 5 sets up a contrast. Contrast. Very... Very abrupt transition here. And in chapter 4, you've got Nebuchadnezzar learning this lesson about humility, and then chapter 5, you've got this abrupt transition to some folks who haven't learned this lesson at all. And the decisions that they're making are not in line with what we just read. More than two decades pass between the last verse of chapter 4 and the first verse of chapter 5. King Nebuchadnezzar died 562 B.C. Chapter 5 opens with a banquet that took place in 539. This is all rooted in history. This all is history. Under King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon became the most powerful empire in the region, but now, as chapter 5 opens, the Persians are on the move. When I say on the move, they're moving towards Babylon right now, as this, this account that we're about to look at takes place. The mighty Persian army is on the rise. They're winning battle after battle after battle. And now, in fact, they were so terrifying to these people that there was a city not far from Babylon in the empire of Babylon that gave up without a fight. They just said, we surrender. We surrender to you right here, right now, not even fighting. So this is happening. The Persian army is getting closer and closer to the city of Babylon, right? And so King Belshazzar does what any wise king would do in this situation. He throws a party. Not making that up. He throws a party. Let's take a look. Chapter 5, starting with verse 1 here. Here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then he brought in the golden vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Now, this might make a little more sense when you consider the context. It wasn't just as simple as, hey, we're throwing a party in the midst of craziness coming our way. In that time, at that place, many believed that if you had a military victory, it's because your God beat out their God. That's what they believe, And so it would make sense that at this banquet, you've got this enemy army coming. This is in some, one way of looking at it is almost like a, an act of not so much defiance, as much as we're putting our trust in Marduk, our God, because Marduk beat up those Israelites, their God, right? And we know that because Nebuchadnezzar took their temple, and we took those treasures. And we didn't melt down those cups and those vessels for the gold that they were. We took them because this is more evidence that our God is more powerful than their God. So we took those treasures, we put them in our temple as a sign that our God is stronger. We got this. We got those big walls. We got this God. We got this. But once again, pride is not reality-based. Let's go all the way back, opening verses of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Did Marduk beat out the God of the Israelites? Nope. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, of king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And who gave Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar? It was the Lord. Marduk didn't win. Nebuchadnezzar didn't win. God gave them over, and the people forgot that. They forgot that these vessels, these treasures, are not a symbol of we got this, but rather God has this, and he removes kings and he sets up kings. One of the themes in Daniel is the theme that God removes and sets up kings and kingdoms. And groups of people get into trouble when they look at their gods and their idols and their military strength and their financial status and their past history for hope. Could our country ever get into that kind of trouble? A lot of people are really concerned. And we got a lot of faith in, we got this, America. When I was reading this chapter, it struck me also that the text says that the Babylonians were praising gods of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. It seems to me that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and there was an idol, and the head was gold, and the shoulders and, and chest were silver, and the middle was bronze, and the legs were iron. And that same dream that Daniel interpreted predicted this very night. The party was uninterrupted. This party that they're having uninterrupted by a ghostly hand. I'm not making this up. Here's where you find it in the Bible. Daniel chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Immediately, in the midst of this party, fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way. And in English, it says his knees knocked together. But a literal translation, if I'm understanding this correctly, is the joints of his loins were loosened. (laughs) Just let that hang out there. But the king called loudly with his loosened joints, and he said, bring in a change of clothes and the enchanters and Chaldeans and the astrologies astrologers, the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, he said, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation will be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold around their neck, and they'll be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the wise king's men came in. They couldn't read the writing or make known the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Belshazzar knew this hand did not bring glad tidings of joy for all the people. In fact, as I was doing my research this week, um, I, I found out that there were some scholars that say when you have a, a hand in a war context, what that generally means is that's how you would count your dead in a battle. Okay, war has come into Babylon, and a disembodied hand is showing up on the wall and writing. This message. And if you read chapter 5, one of the things you're going to notice is you've got these thousand friends hanging out in this banquet, and not a single one of them puts up their hand and says, Excuse me, maybe this party's not such a great idea. Maybe we've offended this God who, for decades, has proven himself to be the God. And maybe we should get some insight instead of these astrologers and, and all these people who have never proven themselves worthwhile. Remember Daniel, who has proven himself worthwhile? None of the thousand people in that room put their hand up and say, hey, king, maybe we should rethink this until literally the king's mom comes in. I'm not making that up. Mom comes in and says, you know, there's a guy named Daniel who we really should consult. Moms know things, don't. Daniel's brought in before the king, and the, in the exchange that follows, we see that the king still doesn't get it, doesn't get it. Here are two verses, let's put them both on the screen at the same time. Daniel 5:13, Daniel 5:18. This is the king. The king says, "You are Daniel whom the king, my father, brought from Judah." Daniel says, "No. Nope. Your father's kingship comes from God." It wasn't what he did. It wasn't what you did. It wasn't about your great nation. It's about a great God. Now, one of the things, if you haven't already been reading in Daniel, I want to encourage you, before you reread chapter 5, read chapters 7 and 8. Because chronologically, at a timeline, 7 and 8 come before 5. And in 7 and 8, God gives Daniel these visions these visions that predict this very night. And perhaps that's why Daniel uses a whole lot less tact in chapter 5 than he uses in the chapters that come before that. A lot of tact in the opening chapters, not a lot of tact in chapter 5. Chapter 5, he just calls out the king, just calls him out because the visions that God gave Daniel predicted this very night. Daniel knows what's coming, and he says, Keep your purple robes. Keep your gold chains. And I certainly don't want a role in your administration. God taught King Nebuchadnezzar a lesson that you should have heeded, that it is the Most High God who rules not only this kingdom, but the kingdom of all humankind. And he sets it over whom he will, and that whom will not be you much longer. Nebuchadnezzar made a decree that all people, all nations, all languages who set themselves up against God, the God of the Israelites, will find their houses laid in ruins. Wasn't that prophetic? Here's more of what Daniel said in his own words. Daniel chapter 5, verse 22 and beyond. And you, his son Belshazzar, this is Daniel, calling out the king, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways? You have not honored. From his presence, that hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. Many, many, Tekel and Parson, this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Paris, your kingdom is divided, given to the Medes and the Persians. In that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Thus ends our second cautionary tale of pride. We got this. Chapter 6 opens with a little bit of hope. Chapter 6 opens. Daniel's not on the sidelines in chapter 6. In Darius' administration, Daniel is, quote, distinguished above all the other high officials. Well, What do you think the other high officials thought of that? Jealousy is another theme woven into Daniel. And isn't jealousy pride based? The other high officials hatch a plan. They slip a document into Dor- Darius's inbox, a document that sentences Daniel to the lion's den. King signs off. This third source of pride has consequences too. And here's Darius' cautionary tale Hey, you've got this. You've got this. If you want to make God honoring decisions, you can't delegate discernment. Can I get an amen? If you want to make God honoring decisions, you can't simply delegate discernment. Should we seek out wise counsel from other people? Yes. And we should be praying. And we should be reflecting deeply. And we should be bringing to bear our minds. And we should be searching the scriptures. Listening to wise people is wise. But you don't outsource discernment. And Darius did that. He just took the advice of these counselors who said, here's a great idea, can you sign here? Sure. And what he did in doing so is he sentenced his top advisor to the lion's den. Don't delegate discernment. One of the reasons why so often up in the front we say, Fact check us. Fact check us. We'll do our best homework. I, I hope I don't give things that you need to fact check. But we do that on purpose because we want to make sure we remind ourselves. Listening to a podcast, that preacher may or may not be telling the truth. You see a statistic online, that may or may not be. You read it, You hear a story in the news, that may or may not be all there is to the story. Don't outsource your discernment. Well, more could be said about all of these three cautionary tales, but our time together... You know, as it comes to a close here, let's talk for just a minute about a common thread that weaves through all of these accounts. Here it is. Partial repentance is a pride Petri dish. Can I get an amen? Partial repentance is a pride Petri dish. I was pre-med for a while at school and we have these little things called Petri dishes. Many of you have seen them, right? And a Petri dish is this little kind of thing. Well, it's a little thing, not a kind of thing. It's a little thing. that that a lot of nasty stuff can grow in really fast. Partial repentance is like that. When you say, I surrender all except, I surrender all except, and we see that in every one of these accounts. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the God, you're the one, you're the rescuer, there's no God like you, Daniel, you rock, but I'm gonna keep these advisors anyway around, and I'm gonna keep these other gods and these other idols. Belshazzar, he was just a train wreck, he didn't surrender much, and Darius, Daniel, you the man. But I'm going to listen to these guys. Here's a quote. I mean, because we do the same things, right? I surrender part. We do it all the time. There's a quote that I just love this by Pastor Craig Rochelle. He said, and I put this in the top of your notes, why would I want to resist tomorrow, a temptation I can eliminate today? Isn't that good? I surrender all. I surrender all. Faith is ultimately about trust. And faith is ultimately about humbling ourselves enough to trust that God knows what's best. There's a place to write this in your notes too. Faith that results in humility leads to a qualitatively different life. In each of our cautionary tales, we see that we can learn the hard way. God loves you enough to let you learn lessons the hard way. He cares that much. Nebuchadnezzar lost everything for a season. Belshazzar lost his kingdom and his life. Darius' decision sentences his most trusted advisor to the lion's den. That is one way we can learn. But here's another, Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. Daniel beseeches Nebuchadnezzar. He says, hey, don't learn the hard way. Let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. And there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You might not have to learn the hard way. If you willingly yield yourself to God, humility on the front end can lead to a qualitatively different life. God loves you enough to teach you humility. You can learn humility the hard way through consequences, or you can learn from the example of someone like Daniel. Daniel knew about the document that Darius signed, the document that would sentence him to death for what he was about to do, but he humbled himself anyway. He placed his full trust in the same God whom Nebuchadnezzar himself had said, there is no other God who is able to rescue this way. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, this is after the document is signed that said, don't do this, Daniel does this because he's putting God first and himself second. When Daniel knew that the document was signed, he went to his house, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God. As He had done previously. Make no mistake. trusting God may result in all kinds of hard things coming your way. There are places in the world you do this, you die. But may I present to you even in extreme situations. The pain that is associated with doing the right thing is qualitatively different than the pain that comes when you are humbled, when you have regret when you've done what is, you know is wrong and you experience those consequences. Those two things are qualitatively different, which is why a soldier will willingly lay down their life for their country. But when you die doing something stupid, a lot of regret, right? A lot of regret. Here's the last talk point that we're going to look at today. And this is where there's so much hope because all of us make stupid decisions all the time, Right? Right? Okay, just Maria, you and I. Come on. Is there anyone else? You cannot yeah, okay, we all make decisions all the time. All right. Here's the great here's the good news. God is great enough to work all things for good. Can I get an amen on that? He is great enough to work all things for good. Why do I say that? Because when it comes to making decisions, we've all been weighed and found wanting. Isn't that true? When it if you look back in your life, and look at the decisions you made. Every one of us is weighed and found wanting because we make stupid decisions all the time. And we deserve consequences that, that, that should be heaped upon us. And yet, the scripture tells us, while we were sinners, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's right there in Romans 5.8. And the good news of the gospel gets better because Romans twenty eight twenty eight says this. For those who love God, that are called according to His purpose, He works all things for good, even ridiculously bad decisions. And how great is God? He can work things for good on a national, global level. Why do I say that? Because what, the accounts we just look at speak to that. They speak to that. Book of... of Of Daniel opens up with Israelites who had been warned, yet they failed to humble themselves, and God gave them over to the Babylonians. The Babylonians were warned, they failed to humble themselves. God gave them over to the Persians. And how does chapter 6 end? It ends with a Persian king on the throne. His name was Cyrus. Where did this whole thing start? It started in Jerusalem with God having to uproot his people to accomplish his purposes. Where does chapter 6 end? It ends with Cyrus. Why is that significant to where we started? Take a look at this. 2 Chronicles 36, 22 through 23. Thus says who? Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a, a, a house where? In Jerusalem. Do you see what God did here? He worked kings and kingdoms for his purposes. Can he do that with our decisions too, even when we make mistakes? Yes. I asked permission to be able to share um, this last story with you of of how what what God did through these nations, he can do through individuals. Um, I went down a few um, days early to, to get things all set up for the group for this Juarez trip. And when I was down there, I had a chance to hang out with one of the guys who now lives and works at the home. He's from Wisconsin originally, and, and he uprooted his whole life and, to go serve, serve these kids. And we're driving around, and I just said, tell me your story. And he, he shared his story. Part of his story was this. He said, you know, um, my parents met when they were teenagers, and I was conceived before you know, they were ever married. And I think about that, and I just think about how good is God how good is God? Because here were two teenagers that broke God's law. And what did God do with that? He did Trent. Trent. Trent, who now is married to Kristen. Trent, who has a baby on the way. Trent, who is now serving these kids at this children's home. Who can do that? Who can take a violation of a good and perfect law and bring something beautiful out of it? Although Trent would probably prefer handsome, I think, than beautiful. Who does this, right? Who takes our decisions that were not right decisions and does something beautiful? God does. Why would we not humble ourselves and surrender all to him? So let's do that as we close the service. Lord, may we surrender all Holy Spirit, bring to mind what all means for us right now. May we surrender all. Our blessed Savior, may we surrender all. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to continue any of these thoughts or these prayers or anything, or pray for anything you'd like, um, Bridget's there in the back. She'd love to pray with you. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for letting me.